1: Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Michael Van, your host, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Kim Wagner, Professor of British Imperial History at the University of London, Queen Mary. Dr. Wagner is a prolific historian and quite the storyteller, and the author of several books. These include Thugi, Banditry and, and the British in Early 19th Century India, Stranglers and Bandits, a Historical Anthology of Thugi, The Great Fear of 1857, Rumors, Conspiracies, and the Indian Uprising of 1857, and The Skull of Alam Beg, The Life and Death of a Rebel of 1857. And a few months ago, uh, my very first podcast for new books in history was on The Skull of Alam Beg. So I strongly recommend going back, listening to that podcast, and also grabbing the book. It is a wonderful, wonderful uh, microhistory of uh, about 1857. But today, we'll be talking about his latest book, Amritsar 1919, An Empire of Fear and the Making of a Massacre, with Yale University Press 2019. Now, from its opening pages, Dr. Wagner tells the readers he wants to challenge the way that the massacre has been recorded in popular and official memory. Indeed, the book starts with um, a description of the 1982 film by Richard Attenborough, Gandhi, and its recreation of the, uh, the massacre in Amritsar. And he notes that and And the opening of the book that he wants to challenge this sort of received image of what the massacre was, so welcome to new books in history Kim
0: uh hi Mike. Thank you for having me again
1: so yeah and you're you're a returning champion um so please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a historian of the Raj and uh someone who's written several books on violence in the on the British Empire in india
0: um well i've always been um interested in in the history of british empire and uh sort of childhood fascination uh with the thugs with uh colonial conspiracies and violence kind of just uh stuck with me uh and and really i'm a, ni- um, a 19th century historian which is why i've written about uh the thugs and the 1857 uprising uh, and uh, the Unwritten Massacre is sort of my first foray into the 20th century, uh, but one that I kind of felt was necessary.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, welcome to the 20th century. As someone who mostly works on the 20th century, we're we're, ha- we're happy to have you. It's uh, it's Thanks. quite the century. It it it, it ends all right. <laughs> wow. Um, so um, in in the book you. Um, you you discuss, uh, obviously the book is about violence, and you, you discuss um, the, way, the role of violence in British, uh, British rule in India. And you state, British rule in India, in other words, was sustained by the application of exemplary violence. And this became one of the founding narratives of the colonial state in India after 1857. So can you expand upon that? What was the role of this exemplary violence? How was it a, a tool of governance? And also, maybe you could talk about what's different about violence in the colonial empire than violence within a nation-state in Europe or violence within the Chinese dynasty or um, uh, an empire in West Africa. What's what's special about colonial violence?
0: Uh, that's a really good question, and it's one that I am uh, in some ways still working on to elaborate. Uh, because if, if you sort of disaggregate uh, the actual... Uh, components of any kind of state violence really uh, they, they do look somewhat similar uh, vil- uh, villages have been burned uh, you know th- throughout history whether it's been in, in europe uh, or the extra-european world um, civilians have been targeted um, the laws of war such as they were uh, have been you know pushed aside and, and ignored, but what I think makes uh, colonial violence um, something that's quite distinct is uh, the logic that that sort of uh, justifies it. And so much of when you look at the violence of, of, of European or Western empires, uh, what, what really sets it apart is is the justification and the rationale that's presented, um, where the the, the sort of the basic uh moral framework is is quite interestingly uh, one which is about essentially when we're talking about the 19th and uh, 19th century and the early 20th century uh, the civilizing uh, mission which means that uh colonial wars are by definition uh just wars so so there's never real really any question as to whether or not what the colonizers do is justified uh, and then it really becomes uh, uh, an issue of of, of justifying the, the the specific kinds of violence that you see. And and one of the things that struck me when I worked on 1857 and the kind of really brutal and demonstrative uh, executions and mass violence that you saw is that it's it's not about punishing the guilty. Uh, it's not sort of an eye for an eye, or, uh, something like that. It's not justice in a European sense of the word it's purely performative uh, it's about sending a message about uh, the strength of colonial authority and because it's a colonial situation you don't have this sort of Foucauldian um, scenario in which the, um, the public the spectators who are witnessing a public execution to some extent have to uh, acknowledge uh, the, the, the justness of the state They don't have to approve of of, of what's going on. Rather, they are direct recipients of the violence. So colonial executions, for instance, are targeted at the entire indigenous population who are all potentially uh, criminals in the sense that they might potentially resist colonial rule. So I think what what sets colonial violence aside is, is the ways that violence is assumed to work and what levels of violence are presumed to be necessary to maintain colonial rule. And one of the things that really struck me when working uh, first on 1857 and later uh, on on, um, the the subject of this book is the the continuities uh, that you really see between the 19th and the 20th century, which, as far as I'm concerned, uh, are really underexplored within the historiography.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and um you you mentioned the executions around 1857 and this is the uh much of the subject of your, your last book the skull of olambeg and you know the, the the types of executions that they're doing are you know, the, the most famous thing is is tying the accused to a cannon and shooting off the cannon and, and blowing them to pieces in front of hundreds or thousands of assembled uh sepoys uh south asian troops and uh and also civilians as well, right? So it has this performative or pedagogical component.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is communicative uh, violence, and it's one that, in in a strange way, is reflexive of uh, cultural sensitivity, uh, if you want. Uh, It's the instrumentalization of of, of Orientalism and and colonial knowledge, uh, because the destruction of of the body uh, is meant to prevent uh, proper burial, both according to Hindu and Muslim. Tradition, which, of course, means that this is not just uh, state violence or even sort of colonial military violence as we usually think of it, but it's actually a type of spiritual warfare in which the colonial state seeks to um, calibrate, culturally calibrate the kind of violence that's inflicted.
1: Right, right and and that it's it's done as again this performative violence this act to to teach those reviewing uh viewing the execution and to um, to scare them um it all it also the discussions of colonial violence also make me think about sort of the the unequal colonial arithmetic um there was an uh a headline in the satirical website the onion uh, about fifteen years ago and it was something along the lines of the equivalent of four Americans were killed in Afghanistan today. And the joke was that you know, four American lives is equal to some other number of Afghan lives. And, you know, was it 40? Was it 400? Um, do, you, do you see that sort of uh, asymmetric uh, uh, importance of the value of white lives versus colonial subject lives um, in, this, in this setting, in this history?
0: Oh absolutely. I, I think you know if we see similar things today, they originate in in, in the colonial context, uh and in the colonial encounter. Um there's I don't want to sort of jump the gun and talk too much about Amritsar, but when you look at the the disparity in, in, in casualties among civilians, it's it's extremely striking that um you know a, a half a dozen Europeans uh is 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 an enormous tragedy while hundreds of of, of uh, indian civilians uh is 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 just simply you know uh, unfortunate um but but that, but that is indeed right. you know speaks speaks to the very logic of of, of the racial hierarchies uh, that underpin so much of of the enactment of colonial violence then and now
1: yeah. and you you, arg- you argue in the book that those who would see Amritsar as this aberration or ignoring the fact that this is actually the standard practice of colonial violence throughout the empire, correct?
0: Yes. I mean, if, if we think about, uh, I mean, it's, it's difficult to write about the British Empire uh, today uh, during sort of an era of, of Brexit and resurgent empire nostalgia um, without uh, making a broader argument uh, about the nature of the empire. And the Amritsa massacre uh, is often invoked uh, sort of in a tokenistic way as yes, you know, there was the, and I I put, I have this in my book, it's a Daily Mail piece that talks about the occasional massacre and that's a direct quote. Uh, and so people would obviously talk about Amritsa or mention Amritsa, maybe Bloody Sunday in Ireland, uh, or they'll talk briefly, you know, mention Mau Mau as these sort of Exceptional moments when rogue officers went off script and sort of let the side down. Uh, But they're really sort of the exceptions that prove the rule, presumably, uh, which is about the the empire essentially as being a force for good in the world. Um, So Amritsa becomes the sort of the the token bone you throw liberals to show you. Yes, of course, there were, you know, there were some unfortunate incidents, but by and large, we did good. Uh, when we used to run the world, uh, and that's of course uh, politically, uh, uh, you know, an, a, a quite impoverished uh, analysis. But also historically, it, it's, it simply doesn't stand up to closer scrutiny, since the, the very logic that underpinned all these events uh, really tie together both these sort of exceptional massacres with the everyday violence. So. The same logic, the same colonial logic that allowed a British soldier to kick his servant to death and get away with it is not that different from the the, the logic that uh, sort of dictated these forms of, of performative violence on a much larger scale. And I think that it's really important to not just focus on the big events, quotation marks, uh, but rather link the exception to the norm. And show how they link, linked. Because otherwise you are just talking about a few sort of fluke events, and that's certainly not the case here.
1: Right, right. Now, also in this discussion of colonial violence, there's certain kinds of violence that can be inflicted on black and brown bodies that would not be inflicted on white bodies, either in the in the empire or back at home. I mean, the, there's violence against strikes, and uh, and and protests in, in England at the time, but these kind of things simply wouldn't happen to white bodies, correct?
0: Yes, uh, that, But that's, I mean, that's one of the defining characteristics of colonial violence, that, that it is defined by uh, what has been described as the rule of colonial difference, which is, as you already alluded to, the fact that um, indigenous non-white people don't count uh, for as much as, as white people do. But also that they have to be punished uh, or defeated uh, in different ways, uh, and, and that that really sort of comes back to the notion of, of the violence as being communicative. Uh, that it doesn't really matter who is executed or who is shot when you're putting down a riot. It's it's simply uh, the violence as as an end in and of itself. Uh, because right, since we're yeah. talking about a colonial uh, situation. Uh, Western Imperial powers are always ruling through coercion rather than consent, regardless of the uh, sort of number of, of local allies who, who support uh, colonial rule. at the end of the day, the only thing that really the only guarantee of, of colonial authority is brute force. and that's we kind of see that sort of being expressed in, in the purest form during these moments of crisis. mm-hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. So in in the introduction, um, you write the following. I'm going to read a a somewhat extended quote here. In this book, I've sought to show the interplay between a colonial mentality rooted in the 19th century and the contingencies of the unrest in 1919, an awareness of and attention to the various temporalities at play within a single event that I have elsewhere referred to as, quote, thick periodization. The approach I have taken in this book might perhaps be described as a micro-history of a global event. Then you continue, whereas most studies of Amritsar focus on its aftermath, its political impact and the public debates and legal issues it raised, that is, the massacre as a historical watershed, I focus narrowly and unapologetically on how events unfolded at Amritsar during April 1919. In doing so, I have sought to uncover the local dynamics of escalation, which reached their violent climax at Jilanwala Bagh through the different experiences of a range of individuals, British and Indian, men and women. So I want to ask you, I I really love this term, thick periodization. And What what do you mean by this? And I assume you're playing on Geertz's thick description. And can you sort of unpack that term?
0: Yes. So... The Amritsar massacre is usually, or almost exclusively, discussed within the historiography as the sort of opening shot uh, of the resistance movement in India and the sort of the first, the beginning of of the the process that leads inexorably to independence in in 1947. And it's really only as the catalyst that it is considered to be important. Um, so it's in many ways. Um, the historical analysis of the Amritsar massacre has been overdetermined by what later happens in a sort of a, you know, conventional teleological fashion. Uh, and it's, it's for me, it was it's really unsatisfactory to read about an event when people don't really care about it, but only kind of, they can't wait to get the massacre over and done with and move on to the important stuff, which is about... Uh, the nature of, of of british rule in india and gandhi and the change of politics there's sort of um an, uh, an impatience with the nitty-gritty details because what really matters within the conventional analysis is is what follows you know decades later uh, and so i kind of wanted to to push aside the 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 the, the, his, the historical status of the mask and rather look at well Nobody in April 1919 knew that this was a watershed. Uh, nobody knew that, you know, two decades later, the British would leave India. So what happens if we push aside everything? Or, you know, of, obviously we can't ignore what we know. But if we at least sort of pretend that this could have been, could have been a blip and maybe, you know, the British had remained in India for 100 years, uh, all sorts of things could have happened. People didn't know that at the moment. I think we, we really lose something in terms of of historical insight because of our own, you know, perspective which is obviously teleological. Uh so that was one thing I was trying to do. Um but then the 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 thick periodization thing uh is is it's really about the, the reason I even you know ended up writing a book about Amritsa is because of my earlier work on 1857 and there's just so many continuities. And then I started to realize that um, rather than seeing the Amritsar massacre as this sort of post First World War slash Wilsonian moment, uh, really a product of its time, it's, it's sort of this is when so many books begin. They begin, you know, 1918, 1919, and, you know, that's the interwar period. We have this sort of established chronology. Um, really, it's not, it's not the beginning of the end of British rule. Analytically, it makes more sense to look at it as, as, as the final stages of a much longer process, which for me, uh, as, as I argue at least, began in the 19th century. And when you look at mm-hmm. how the British are experiencing these chaotic uh, weeks and months uh, in, in the spring of 1919, they're not, they're, they're, they're not uh, thinking about in a, in a very interesting ways. They're not thinking about the post First World War crisis. They're thinking about things that happened in the 19th century. So these uh, what I've referred to as a mutiny motif, this sort of deep-seated, almost paranoid colonial mindset, shaped the way that British colonial officials and British civilians in India, even after the First World War, experienced. Which what is the, the, the emergence of anti-colonial nationalism as a mass movement. And so a thick periodization, yes, it, it, it is a play of gears and, and uh, probably also a bit pretentious to try and coin in a, a phrase like that. But trying to, to, to really get to grips at the way that people, they interpret chaos, the chaos around them, through whatever precedent that they invoke, and in 1919, it was events uh, six decades earlier that they were thinking of. So that's, that's the you know that, that's what I'm trying to, to get at with that terminology.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think it's an excellent a very very thought-provoking term. Um, I also love the phrase "microhistory of a global event." Um, can you can you expand upon that? I mean, you you said it's 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 they don't understand it as a watershed at the time, but then you go on to call it this micro history of a global event. So what what do you mean by that?
0: Well, originally I thought I would write a global history of the Aramritsa massacre, and I thought I would write about you know what's going. On. This is, I mean, the unrest in in India you know coincides with the Egyptian revolution and uh, the Irish war of independence is kicking off there's so much going on here that is in many ways tied together so i thought you know clearly a uh, a global history is the way to go but the more i looked at it and the more i looked at the um the sort of street level um you know the the, the dynamic of the riots uh and the sort of the individuals letters that were being written Is is no. There are very few references to what else is going on um, in the world at the moment. Uh, And I and then sort of as you start working, I I researched this for many years, and you get a lot of time to think about how best to narrate it. I realized, you know, if I could, if I could just get the basic facts right and kind of put the reader on the scene at the moment when things happened uh, at the most detailed level possible, uh, I'd be quite happy with that. Um, I think there's something, um, I mean, this is not the first book about the Amritsa massacre. And I think there is a particular uh, and, and quite problematic uh, dynamic that happens when when historians and writers say, write about big events, well-covered events. It's, it's what I would call the Titanic effect or the D-Day effect. Um, that they never go back to to scratch, you know. When 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 you have, you know, twenty, fifty other books on the subject written before the one you're writing, very few people go back to scratch. Very few people revisit uh, the original sources, and therefore they kind of just build on what is already there. Um, and so, what I really wanted to do was, I mean, I actually deliberately. Didn't read all the secondary works on the Amritsar massacre till later, and I wanted really to get into the to the primary material in the in the, in the sort of most sort of intimate sense, precisely because the mm-hmm. Amritsar massacre has this this particular uh, status both within the empire but also South Asian history.
1: Right, right. I mean, it's you know you, you talk about this historical tele- teleology, and it's you know that's an issue for historians but it also has an impact on um how we understand Indian and, and British imperial political history i mean pe- people have made use of this event for the, the next century at this point correct
0: yeah and it's it's still used today to bash, you know just as a throwaway remark uh but it's never understood in its own terms the amritsar massacre has mm-hmm. become a metaphor for the empire uh as um a, a, as a morally you know deeply problematic uh, proposition uh w- without any real attempt at, at understanding what happened uh and and so mm-hmm. so i mean some 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 historical events are sort of so big that we cease to care about what actually happened and it becomes more like just sort of the the the, the bumper sticker value of, of of the way that they are invoked right.
1: All right. Yeah. Which which leads me to another uh, quote, a little shorter quote that I want to read. And this is very similar to something you wrote in The Skull of Alam Beg. You essentially give your readers a political disclaimer when you write, quote, My particular take on the events of the Amritsar massacre will not appeal to everyone. And for those who prefer their Raj nostalgia or their Indian nationalist mythology to go unchallenged, there are literally dozens of books that will provide reassuring and politically edifying narratives. This book is not that. So, what, what, how does this book challenge Raj nostalgia and how does it challenge Indian nationalist mythology?
0: Um, I, th- I think the way both the public debate but also much of the historiography today is still mired in this oversimplistic balance sheet approach that either the British Empire was generally a force for good and the Amritsar massacre is an unfortunate event but an exception therefore does not represent anything bigger it's, it's an anomaly that would be the the Empire nostalgic take on it which means you, you somehow have to explain it away as a fluke. Uh, Or or the the opposite argument, uh, which you find and which is quite popular, uh, particularly in India today, namely that uh, the British Empire was satanic and and one long sequence of massacres. And it was the massacre itself was carefully planned and carried out because the British were evil racists. And and, uh, I mean, they, they were to some extent. Uh, but but neither of these approaches uh are really uh, i think it's quite self evident that they're not adequate if we want to understand what actually happened and i'm still f- I'm sufficiently old fashioned to think that making sense of what appears to be senseless acts is is what we should be doing uh, and i don't i don't uh, i don't really care if if, if i um, i heard people's feelings in that respect i mean i i i, I, I I challenge a lot of, of Indian nationalist uh, assumptions and popular assumptions about the massacre as well because we simply don't have the evidence uh, for a number of things but um I ha- I have that disclaimer just to you know to signal that that I I don't really I don't consider myself to to uh take sides um whereas so many so much of the debate today is about well, you know, was it good? Was it bad? Uh, guilt, shame, pride—these kind of just very emotive and deeply unhelpful uh, ideas are floating around in the debate.
1: Right, right. So, you, you touched upon this already, but I wanted to ask you to expand upon this, um, and that's the the question of the memory of the mutiny of eighteen fifty seven. And again, as you note um, in the uh, the skull of Allenbeg, the 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 memory is so important for the British experience in India. So, how, looking at looking at this case of Amritsar in eighteen or nineteen nineteen, how are the Britishers remembering the mutiny? How are they remembering eighteen fifty seven? And what what sort of tropes do they fall into?
0: So. The the reason why the uh, 1857 uprising uh, figures or loom so large in the British colonial imagination is that you do have these uh, massacres of of, of uh, European civilians, including women and children, and British colonial rule uh, was indeed uh, threatened uh, in 1857. It's quickly restored uh, brutally, uh, but what uh, the British they take away. And this is why it's so problematic about you know this sort of people who who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. In this case, the British they they take the wrong lessons away from 1857, uh, which is about uh, their hold of India ultimately depends on the uh, application of force as a sort of a, as, a, as a backup, regardless of of, of liberal uh, rhetoric, uh, but also. A deep-seated fear of indigenous conspiracies. Um, uh, I, I today actually I just heard a podcast about conspiracy theory in America and how much you know how largely it loomed in the uh, in the era around the American Revolution and, and even before that. And there's just something very similar going on uh, in terms of the way that rumors, panic. And and the sort of projected fears they shape British interpretations of the indigenous populations that they they're governing. So by the time we get to 1919, the notion of legitimate anti-colonial protest movements is inconceivable. Um, yeah. The idea is that Indi- British rule is perceived as being just and a good thing. So if you resist British British rule. Uh, clearly uh, you, you don't have a legitimate cause and, and the gullible masses whom the British are protecting in sort of a traditional paternalist sense, so they tell themselves uh, must have been uh, manipulated by uh, Western educated uh, agitators. And so the way that the British, they read Indian protests or unrest uh, is just deeply distorted Uh and, and 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 carries this imprint of
1: 1857. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. So you start the book as I mentioned, um, describing Attenborough's recreation of the massacre, and um, then you make us wait 160 plus pages before you actually get to the massacre. And I'll note that the part of the subtitle of the book is the making of a massacre. So, why is it so important that you spent time focusing on the events in the weeks leading up to the April 13th massacre?
0: Um, it actually comes uh, in part, at least, from a really brilliant article by Jordana Belkin called The Boot and the Spleen, uh, in which she argues about uh, trying to make sense of violence. And she says there's nothing more banal than, you know, pointing out that. You know, colonialism was defined by violence uh, and that there's this tendency to almost taking it for granted. But what we really need to do as historians and scholars is to, well, try and unpack it and, and see how it's presumed to work and uh, the effects it actually has. And so um, I, I was always kind of troubled by the previous attempts at, at describing the Amritsa massacre, which sort of to say, oh yeah, there's a bit of unrest in the spring, and then you know we have a massacre, and then we move on to the more important thing. And for me, uh, it's 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 the events, it's the days preceding the massacre on the thirteenth of April, nineteen nineteen, and the unrest that engulfs uh, Amritsar in the Punjab in northern India that really uh, allows us to make sense of what happens. So it's it's about taking. Context seriously, in some way,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and the 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 film Gandhi actually does a pretty terrible job with that context. Correct? I mean it it the the scene starts with uh, someone giving a speech that's you know presenting um, uh, the sort of the Gandhian techniques of uh, non nonviolence, the importance of ahimsa, and so forth, and then the massacre just is unleashed, and it is this it sort of comes as a bolt out of a blue. Correct.
0: Yeah, and and it doesn't have to be, there's, there's no reason, there's no rhyme or reason for why it happens. The only thing you can sort of say is, oh, you have this uh, horrible, uh, sort of brutal, uh, stiff upper, upper lip, br- uh, broom, uh, mustache, steel-eyed, um, Edward Fox t- uh, representing uh, General Dyer. So he, right. he also embodies right. the violence right. of the empire, you know, as an individual, which makes it an ad hominem. Explanation for the violence, but also it requires no reason. So in the Gandhi movie, it's just sort of plonked in there in the middle of the narrative about Gandhi to show that um, Ga- the sort of the mobilization of, of, of mass protest against the British and the strength of Gandhi's uh, you know message of nonviolence was such as to provoke a violent British you know response uh, that was sort of irrational and to some extent demonstrated the truth of, of Gandhi's message. Uh, and that's really reducing the massacre to just sort of uh, a sort of a, a brief sort of incident in, in, in this in this what I've always referred to, this much longer trajectory about the Indian struggle for, for independence and, you know, that comes to fruition two decades later. Uh, but this assumption that you you don't actually have to make sense of colonial violence, it just happens because the colonizers are racist and brutal um, and it also it also presents this very very easy easily digestible narrative about villains and victims and it is of course difficult not to talk about victims uh, when we're looking at something like the Amritsar massacre yet again i would say it doesn't help us understand what happens if we see if we simply issue, see one side as the villains and the other as the victims
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so what are some of the specific events that happened in Amritsar and in, in the Punjab in the days leading up to April thirteenth? Um, you you talk about the Rowlatt Act, uh, also known as the Anarchical and Revolutionary Crimes Act. You also you touch upon uh, the impact of the, that's the Spanish flu, the the flu pandemic, and um, other other forces. So, what's what what are the key events and key sort of uh pressures on the uh on Amritsar in in uh, in the spring of 1919
0: so the end of the first world war uh does not bring relief uh india has has quite remarkably uh, been ext- the population has been extremely supportive of the british war effort on the assumption that this sort of expression of loyalty i mean there's more than an, a million indians who either fight for the british or, or otherwise uh, serve the British as, as carriers, uh, uh in the Middle East, in the Mesopotamia, and the Western Front as well. And there's huge amounts of resources and money that are actually, uh, help uh, you know, help to, you know, fight the Germans. Um, and so there's this expectation that, that Indian loyalty will be rewarded at the end of the war. And this sort of global disruption of trade. The the impact of the flu pandemic, uh, this sort of a succession of of, of, uh, failed harvests and famines. Um, This this all sort of expresses itself in the spring of 1919 when the British, instead of rewarding um, Indian support for the war, uh, decide to continue the wartime emergency measures. So there are reforms the Montague Chemsford reforms but they're really quite limited uh, and to some extent simply you know tokenistic um, so there's this this expectation which is, is uh, which is followed up by extreme disappointment and then you have the British uh, you know continuing the wartime emergency measures which makes them look like um, the, the sort of the, the, the brutal uh Prussians that they've just been you know fighting and 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 um, loving propaganda are at for 4 years um and that that really gives rise to uh Gandhi's mass movement which protests these uh, emergency legislation and from British perspective, the idea is that you reward loyal Indian politicians who are re- willing to work within the empire. Nobody's talking about independence at this point in time, but you also retain all these really tr- quite draconian measures, which means you can arrest people, keep them without trial, uh, uh, and you know shut down the press and these kind of things to to keep revolutionaries in check. So so there's a notion of the carrot and the stick, and the idea is that you can uh, deploy them in, in a very sort of careful way but of course it, it's 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 quite obvious uh, to many Indians at the time that really the British they rather than loosening their grip on, on, on India they're, they're actually tightening it quite significantly uh, but from a British perspective mm-hmm. the protests are not justified they're not legitimate uh, one of the reasons being that there's no Real recognition that that Indian nationalism is a legitimate sentiment, or that one could reasonably protest against British rule. So we see mm-hmm. in, so the spring... in
1: in in that con- in in that context, there's there's a couple of specific events that happen in the in the days leading up. Correct? There's yeah uh, demonstrations and riots.
0: Yeah. So I mean, you have these for the first time. You have mass meetings of tens of thousands of people meeting. Uh, and and listening to political speeches and nationalist songs again they're talking about reforms within the empire and something like dominion status they're not calling for independence Uh, but the way that the british are perceiving it and you know we've got the the sort of the spy report secret service uh, observers you know recording what's happening uh, and what they see is sort of um, the potential for for another uprising. I mean, this is not that long after the Russian Revolution, so there is a heightened sense of 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 uh, well fear uh, uh, in that sense. Uh, and the British they think that by arresting local leaders, they can sort of shut down the protests because the idea is that people have no real reason to protest, and so if you just get rid of these. Uh, Seditionists, as they referred to, then everything will be will be calm, but the opposite happens. the british say preemptively arrest the the political nationalist leaders in amritsa uh, and what they've actually done is they've removed the leaders from a popular uh, popular mass movement uh, uh that try to make it into the european lines this is of course a, a racially fairly segregated uh colonial um sort of urban landscape and the Indian protesters, they, th- they think they are negotiating with the authorities to call for the release of their leaders, uh, whereas the British, they see sort of the, the native masses, you know, charging across the railway tracks and invading what is essentially perceived as a white space. And this triggers this panic reaction. Uh, and so British uh, military and police open fire um, and, and kill a number of protesters. And that, then, that situation then escalates on, on the 10th of April. 1919. And that leads to the uh, quite brutal murders of five European civilians inside the Indian part of the city. Uh, That should be seen in the context of 20, 30 Indian rioters being shot and killed. Um, And that really triggers those sort of uh, 1857 uh, memories. Uh, There's also infamously a female missionary who's cycling through Amritsar and she's attacked uh, beaten and left for dead and that sort of is perceived with, by the british authorities as a as a sexual attack that again pointed back to uh, sort of the nightmare scenario of 1857.
1: Mm-hmm. it reveals the importance of sort of the the gender nature of some of these acts of violence or perceived acts of violence that uh, you know it's, it's one thing to kill a, a white man but when you touch a, a white woman, there's a, a whole different set of revenge that's going to be brought out. Correct?
0: Yeah, and, and the, those very words, uh, uh, you know, the British officials at the time they say that, you know, five European civilians, uh, men being f- effectively lynched by Indian crowds, was not nearly as bad as, as this female missionary being attacked, because that is an attack right. on sort of the very sort of edifice of British rule in India, and of course it it challenges implicitly. Uh, white masculinity, uh, which then has to be restored mm-hmm. through violence, and then we kind of know what's going to happen next.
1: And the, of course, that resonates with uh, America's history of lynching and uh, the allegations of a black man—you know, even even whistling at a white woman—could lead to you know truly horrifying uh, uh, acts of violence and revenge. Um, but the uh, the Indian writers uh, also attack something else very important to the British. They they attack the bank, right?
0: Yeah. So so they attack uh, every sort of physical manifestation of British authority. Since they can't actually enter the European lines, they turn their anger on the telegraph office, the post offices. They tear down telegraph lines. Um, and which at- is
1: something the boxers did as well. Yeah, I mean, in China, the Boxer Rebellion he, tore down telegraph lines,
0: and, and the Indian rebels did it in 1857. I mean, it, it's one of the most mm-hmm. obvious manifestations of colonial rule: is, is telegraph lines and, and railway tracks and train stations, which, of course, also looks like it's a pre-coordinated anti-colonial, you know, resistance movement. Uh, but really, it's it's just the most natural thing. When we're looking at these sort of moments of colonial crisis, you attack the visible uh, symbols of colonial rule. Another one being churches, of course. Um, and so so, so, so the, these attack, they're both brutal, but they're also embodied in sort of the symbolism of a challenge to a mm-hmm. British rule. And then mm-hmm. the female missionary, for instance, she's beaten, but the, the young men who attack her, they take off their slippers and hit her with their slippers, which is a sign of... of a, of disrespect, uh, so we can see Insult, right. the the logic of that uh, kind of crowd violence. It's like
1: throwing a shoe at the the white invader, uh, be it be it Amritsar or be it a press conference with uh, President George W. Bush in Baghdad. Correct. Indeed. So, in terms of the the massacre itself and the, the British violence inflicted upon Indian bodies. General Dyer is the figure most associated with this violence. Um, What can you tell us about him? And what did his experience in the empire bring? uh, What what experience in the empires did he bring to the bog in April 1919?
0: Well, other historians have tried to explain that he was a unique character and that he was irascible. He had irritable bowel syndrome and he was traumatized by his First World War Uh, experience, uh, none of this really makes sense uh, because General Dye was not that atypical. Uh, He had served uh, in Burma in the 1880s. He had been in Ireland for a bit and he was in in the Middle East during the First World War. He was not a particularly uh, famous uh, or or noted officer. But after the, the, the riots that have happened, there is from official hold this uh, idea that something needs to be done. Uh, An example has to be set. And so General Dyer is only the third officer within 24 hours who is sent to Amritsa in order to restore uh, British authority. And the two previous ones are replaced when when they fail to take uh, drastic measures. Uh, So General Dyer, he turns up with this sort of, uh, empire experience, which requires uh, non-white people to be, um, you know, the, the 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 logic is that that the only language you know non-white people understand is is violence, uh, and and it has to be unflinching and quick uh, in order to nip further unrest in the bud. Uh, and so that's what what General Dyer does on the thirteenth of April, which is also a large religious festival so so amritsa was was full of, of, of pilgrims as well he heard about uh he had banned political meetings order had been restored or peace at least uh, and he heard there was a, a big gathering deep inside the old uh, indian part of the city um and and this is when when the analysis i think it's 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 interesting to actually sort of stop and look at the different steps that happens. Because the way that the massacre itself is is depicted in the Edinburgh movie is, is one of, of peaceful protesters literally quoting Gandhi. Uh, and then you have uh this brutal uh colonial officer in a pith helmet rolling up with armored cars and troops and carry out a massacre. Uh and it and it 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 makes no sense. Um and that's you could say from 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 one um, in one way that that's what happened, but if you actually look at the the uh, general Dyer, he provided five quite detailed accounts of of his actions and explained it at some length later on. What he saw in front of him was not a peaceful crowd; he perceived it as a, a war situation, and he was entering a war zone, which is why he brought armored cars. He stationed British troops all around Amritsar, mm-hmm. not in order to surround the city, but rather to extricate him and his men in case they were ambushed. So the scenario that's in front of of, of General Dyer is something more like uh, Black Hawk Down. Uh, and he, he literally thinks mm-hmm. he might be ambushed by rebels. And he refers to the entire population of Amritsa as rebels. And the moment you realize that, you know, he's not experiencing the actual situation in front of him. What he's experiencing is some kind of uh, paranoid um re reoccurrence of the 1857 uprising sadly his actions you know make sense within that framework and so when he mm-hmm. he, he he comes across this massive gathering which is about between 10 and, and 20000 um Men, women, and children, a lot of them are simply there uh, for picnics. It's sort of a popular spot. Some are just resting. There. There's gamblers there. There's children playing. There's a small political meeting taking place. He thinks he's caught the rebels, uh, and, and he, he simply acts immediately. He marches in with 50 armored, uh, uh, um, armed troops and opens fire uh, at point-blank range. And this is, the Jalan is this big enclosure. It's a par- open space um a park is uh, too nice of a word for what it is it's sort of a bit of a wasteland uh but it's really like shooting fish in a barrel so the 50 troops they fire for 10 minutes and they fire 1650 rounds and uh the people have nowhere to to run because there are only four small exits that quickly get blocked up so people are uh, stampede and and you know trample on each other and and the result is 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 absolutely devastating um the british they eventually acknowledged or accepted that 379 people had been killed and about three times that wounded uh and my research would lead me to suggest that something like 5 to 600 people were killed and three times that wounded with that said we'll never know exactly how many and you could also say that the exact numbers don't really matter uh it it's it, it's not it's not more or less yeah, of a monstrosity you know regardless of whether 300 people died or a thousand people died it doesn't really change right. how horrific it was
1: yeah it's that's it's similar to um the work i've been doing on the uh the uh indonesian's military military is uh, uh destruction of the indonesian communist party and was it five hundred thousand that they killed? Was it a million? Was it one point five million? Was it three million? Is one one general uh, responsible for the murders claimed? It, when you're when you're juggling hundreds of thousands of murdered people, it, the exact number starts to become irrelevant. And actually, that the I think that the the vagueness about that number when you've got such mass atrocities um belies or underlines the point that this was something truly truly horrific. So. Um, In the, in the days following the, um, the massacre, uh, you, you talk about this in uh, Forces of Terror about April 14th to April 30th. How did, how did British repression continue after this, uh, the massacre itself on April 13th? Uh,
0: a, a curfew was put in place, which uh, meant that those who were wounded after the massacre couldn't receive medical help, and a lot of people died from their wounds. Uh, but there's also public flockings, mass arrests. Uh, and in the street where this female missionary, she was attacked, uh, the infamous crawling order is put in place, which requires all Indian men to crawl along the street on their bellies. Mm-hmm. And there are British guards put in place who uh, are there for a week and who are basically urinating in the local well, uh, killing pigeons in a nearby temple. Uh, and there are some boys who are said to have been the attackers of, of the missionary who are taken there and flocked publicly. So you have the sort of, um, and these are referred to as fancy punishment because the British are basically doing whatever they feel is required to restore colonial authority, which is basically it's collective punishment. Of uh, electricity and water is also shut off to the entire city of Amritsar, uh, and that, and of course, Amritsar is only part of, of the wider unrest that takes place in Punjab. Um, and that's that's mm-hmm. all—all really, so all these
1: various measures that follow up on the the massacre itself, and you know, purposely in, insulting. I mean, the, the, your description of um, the curfew keeping people from accessing the hospital—that was that was a real, um, real eye opener for
0: me. Yes, and and it's and it speaks to the the logic of of colonial uh, violence, which I think is is not calculated. When General Dye is asked about it, you know. He, and he said, "Well, if, if people wanted medical aid, they could just ask for it." He said, "Well, he, he had actually enforced the curfew right after the massacre making it impossible for people to receive aid. And I don't think it was this calculated uh, evil mindset. I think it was complete callousness and indifference to Indian suffering, which speaks to a sort of a deep-seated you know kind of, 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 of uh, well. Colonial mentality, which where racism plays a large role, and of course none of this was would would be conceivable uh, if the enemy, in inverted commas, had been white. I mean, even in Ireland and the sort of the mm-hmm. the, the policy of, of reprisals that takes place in the years in the following years, none of that gets gets anywhere near what happens in in India in 1919.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about how the rest of the world came to know about the massacre and, and the general reaction. and Maybe you can also talk about the Hunter Commission, which was the official inquiry into the massacre and what it was able to accomplish and what it was unable to accomplish.
0: Yeah, so because martial law is is enforced, uh, it means that there's a complete shutdown on press. So actually nobody really knows what happens. Uh, and, and And it's only piecemeal that news escapes from Punjab. So actually, Indian nationalists, including Gandhi, undertake their own independent investigation, trying to find out what has taken place. And that kind of forces the British to actually try and find out what happened. So there was, there was no uh, interest, really, from official hold to find out how many people have been killed. That's something that they, they, they tried to find out months later when they were forced to it, because Indian nationalists were actually able to to release and, and inform the press uh, outside of Punjab about this. So the news, sort of the details of the massacre, don't reach London until December 1919, uh, which is quite remarkable when you think about it. And it and it and it creates really a, 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 a scandal and splits society because. Um, it proves to those sort of more liberal minded that conservative imperialism is, is an immorally unsustainable endeavor, while it makes the empire, at the same time, makes the empire really, really difficult to defend, which is indeed why Winston Churchill, he, he throws Dyer under the bus. And the, the government at the time, um, criticizes Dyer for his actions. Dyer is, He's really ill at that point of time in early 1920 and he goes on sick leave, but he's actually forced to relinquish his command. Um, and, and he's got widespread support from the um, conservative press and a lot of conservative politicians, mm-hmm. uh, I, but uh, he, he has to resign from the army uh and so he he loses part of his pension but that's that's as far as it goes in terms of him being actually punished but in many ways the debate about the massacre uh really becomes a sort of a proxy debate about uh Ireland which begins to to consume british politics uh but also the future of the british empire uh and so already at the time it it became this event uh that 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 signified something else than, than than sort of the the actions themselves and what people had done. And Dyer he becomes this this guy who's he's the only one who's ever in any way really um uh seen to be responsible for the violence, although he's by no means unique. I mean it's one of the things I try to to argue in in the book that there, there are talks about um bombing Amritsar from the air with airplanes before Dyer even turns up um so i mean he's not and and you find other british officers who who, who literally say the very same things that that dyer did so the very idea that he's somehow so he's
1: far he's far from an aberration
0: yeah you know uh, and i mean it, it i don't i don't see how that that notion could could ever be you know sustainable because his, it's almost mm-hmm. like he's quoting from, you know, Calwell's Small Wars, the sort of military manual of, of colonial warfare, when he talks about setting an example, a striking hard, and don't showing weakness in the face of natives, in inverted comma. Um, and you could say to some extent, it would be nice to say that it was sort of the last gasp of a colonial mindset, and that after, you know, the lessons learned from the Amritsar massacre, Points towards a sort of more humane counterinsurgency strategy uh, that sort of takes us past the Second World War or into the wars of decolonization. But that's of course not true. I think um, the, the 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 euphemisms are changed a bit, uh, but but the perceived necessity to inflict this kind of violence actually never goes away.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, General Diarrig has official sanction, gets something equivalent to a. Dishonorable discharge, withdrawn from um, from India, sent back to England, lose part lose parts of his pension. But he's you mentioned the conservative press has a lot of support for him, but also uh, the British in India and also many in the British civilian population at home. What do, what do they think of him, and how do they respond to him?
0: Well, he is, and this in some ways uh, has some parallels to what's recently taken place in the U.S. in terms of. Uh, President Trump's pardon of of, of uh, war criminals. Um,
1: he is, yeah, this is a, the SEAL officer.
0: Yeah, yeah. and others. Um, but General Dye is seen as a brave soldier who did his horrible duty, but who was thrown under uh, the bus by liberal armchair politicians who put him in a dangerous position or situation in the first place. Uh, And so you have this outburst of popular support and uh, a quite substantial sum of money, 26,000 pounds, are collected uh, through public uh, funds uh, or public donations to him. Um, Women, English women in India, they collect money and sort of describes him as he saved them from the outrages of 1857 recurring. And that's when you can really see how this is really—it's not about the unrest in 1919 and the political turmoil and the rise of Indian nationalism as much as as it is about this sort of 1857 as as a nightmare scenario that still drives British perceptions of of Indian unrest. Uh, the kind of uh, the Morning Post, the ultra-conservative newspaper that that organizes the collection for Dyer, they publish the names of the people who donate money. And it's sort of some people donate one pound, two pound, 50 shillings, stuff like that. But the, the, the synonyms that they write under is, is always something like someone who can't forget 1857 or somebody who served in the empire. So, you know, General Dyer's case becomes really about the, the British empire uh, in, in a much larger debate about the changing nature of, of the global political landscape after the First World War.
1: Yeah, and, and as you pointed out, there's so much resonance with events today. It sounds like uh, those could be similar Twitter handles of uh, uh, Trump supporters uh, you know, praising his, uh, his amnesty of, uh, of certain war criminals. Um, what, what about the fate of O'Dwyer, who was the uh, civilian head of the Punjab?
0: So he um, he's actually uh, tries to exonerate Dyer for a very long time uh in 1924 there's a libel case he sues an indian politician for describing quite you know briefly that you know there was a reign of terror during martial law which is objectively speaking accurate but he the indian uh, politician he uh, he actually loses that case and so that high court judgment in 1924 actually exonerates dyer and says you know what he did was right and he was it was wrong for politicians to dis uh, sort of liberal politicians to disown him. Uh, so O'Dwyer's name becomes linked to that of Dyer. And Dyer himself, he he's, has uh, several strokes and he dies in 1927. But O'Dwyer is assassinated by an Indian nationalist, uh, Udam Hussein, uh, uh, Udam Shahid, uh who in uh, 1940, as sort of a belated revenge for uh, sorry, Udam Singh. Is his yeah, 21 years later. Yeah. Uh, uh, by a Sikh called Udam Singh, Um, and that is seen as, oh, this finally has has the Amritsar massacre been avenged. Uh, But by that time, of course, the Indian national struggle has has come underway, and uh, many other things have happened. that, that that is the narrative today you 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 see in India. At at Jallianwala Wallabakh there's a statue of Udam Singh outside of the main gate into Amritsa the statue of Udam Singh. So 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 the commemoration is very much about sort of heroic struggle but also the avenging the Amritsa massacre and the sort of outburst of patriotic sentiments that it uh, occasioned. And again, that's 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 looking at the Amritsar Massacre not as an event that has significance in and of itself, uh, but more so as a catalyst of, of all, all people's heroic actions.
1: Right, right. You, using that history for a political purpose. Um, so in your conclusion, you discussed Prime Minister David Cameron's visit to Amritsar in 2013. Can you tell us about that and, and your take on his statement there?
0: yeah, so there's been there's been since the Queen she visited Amritsar uh, in nineteen ninety seven and uh, Prince Philip, he said something racist as his want to do. Uh, she didn't apologize uh, oh, Prince
1: Prince Philip is particularly good at that. he I'm, certainly is.
0: Um, uh, David Cameron did not apologize. He quoted Churchill actually uh, in saying this was a monstrous and isolated events and uh, that we have to remember the British they stand for the freedom of speech. Uh, so, so you 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 end up in this strange situation where um, call for an apology is actually used as a, as a as an occasion to celebrate British exceptionalism and defence of, of liberal uh, virtues, uh, but no actual apology. Uh, and there was no apology in 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 2019 when uh, Theresa May she expressed regret, uh, but no apology. What what did happen and which really surprised me was that um, I think it was in September uh, of of 2019 the Archbishop of Canterbury Justin Welby he went to Amritsar and he prostrated himself in in front of the Amritsar uh, Jallianwala Bagh memorial and apologized in his capacity of a, a religious person. Uh, and so I actually thought that was a more uh, meaningful gesture because historical apologies are really political rituals. Uh, and and uh, I find it hard to see anything good coming from a conservative politician, British politician today, uh, making some kind of circumscribed non-apology uh, at, at the memorial. Um, but of course, that that that's the issue of an apology divides opinions quite uh, quite a bit.
1: All right. You're not holding your your breath for Boris Johnson to deliver some eloquent words uh, of healing.
0: Well, I mean, the question is whether you would want him to. I mean, he he'd start quoting Kipling <laughs> if he ever turned up. Adam Ritzer. Uh and I think sort of <laughs> the backlash would potentially be quite disastrous. Uh, so no, I'm not holding my breath.
1: Okay. So um, you end the book uh, with an epilogue that talks about the memorial site in Juala, Juala, uh today, um, and you mentioned this previously, but what's your, what's your critique
0: of
1: the memorial that's
0: there right now? It's not a critique as much as uh, almost a, a bit of a sadness that the, that the historical event has almost been completely effaced. Uh, There are some bullet holes left, uh, but what you really see celebrated there is this nationalist myth of heroic sacrifice. uh, And, and, and uh, there's topiary soldiers there. If if you want to sort of gauge the, the uh, sort of the the somber atmosphere that's invoked by the park (laughs) itself. Um, But, but it's, it's, there's the, a gallery of martyrs. I mean this is very much the language we're talking about this as a sign when you come inside the, the the park that says this ground is hallowed by the mingled blood of two thousand Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs. So it's it's very much sort of a, a post nineteen forty seven secular nationalist narrative um that that's being celebrated. Uh and that's just very very
1: And they use the number two thousand.
0: Yeah. I mean I mean the the numbers, you know I mean that's one of as a as a as a historian uh, you know it it i find it frustrating how little the max uh, the facts they matter uh, at the very site of the wind itself i mean there's something called the martyrs well where there's a sign that says 120 bodies were pulled out from this well people who presumably fell into the well and drowned during the massacre and I've, I've looked at all the records and the indian nationalists at the time they described one or two people falling into the well so these are just the kind of obvious sort of myths that that grow up uh, or that emerge at sites like this uh, so i mean really what, what i wanted to indicate is that we we have to recognize that that these big historical events uh, don't simply happen. They're, they're constructed afterwards. And, and to some extent, you can say the narrative of the Amritsar massacre that you find today is, to some extent at least, an invented tradition. Uh, and, and I'm not going to tell people that it's wrong and it's silly to believe in. I just want to say, you know, it's, well, here's here's a different account.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we've taken up a bunch of your time and really appreciate that. But before you go, um, can you suggest? One or two books related to either Amritsar or studies of colonial violence that um, that you would recommend?
0: Well, I mean, this is this is a bit awkward, uh, but I would highly recommend <laughs> your work. Um, you've Oh. brilliant uh, 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 absolutely brilliant.
1: Uh, no, this is not awkward at all. This is delightful. <laughs> Go on. Well,
0: but I mean, <laughs> your work has been inspirational for me. Um and so uh, you 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 got a couple of absolutely brilliant articles uh on uh, fear and loathing and Hanoi and of pirate's postcards and beheadings. Uh but more recently you 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 published your um the great uh, rat massacre of Hanoi as as a comic book from Oxford University Press, which is uh a, a extremely original format, but also an absolutely brilliant historical analysis uh so if if I can recommend something, it would be your work
1: well kim thank you that that's very nice i'm I'm very flattered um, but aside from the great Hanoi rat hunt, could you recommend two books um pertinent to this conversation that the listeners would find valuable
0: uh well yes uh, there's a other than you, there's a lot of uh, very good literature on, on colonial violence. Uh, one particular favorite of mine is uh, Swedish travel writer Sven Lindqvist, um, Exterminate All the Brutes uh, from the early 90s, 1990s, which is sort of part travelogue and part uh, meditation on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And it's, 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 it's a fairly brief book, but it's really interestingly written and really engaging.
1: Yeah, that that is a fabulous book, and, and it's brilliant the way that he links... His reflections on colonial violence with the origins of the Nazi genocide.
0: Yes, uh, and of course, since he wrote that, a lot of academics have sort of picked up on that. And of course, it it points back to Hannah Arendt's work uh, ultimately.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a wonderful read. You got? Do you have one more?
0: Um, I'm a great fan of uh, the work of Anne Stoler, which is not necessarily very accessible. Uh, but one of her articles uh, is called "In Cold Blood," uh, which is about the murder of of uh, a Dutch uh, planter family uh, in Sumatra in, in the 19th century. Uh, and that's I just absolutely love that article because it really brings out the the complicated dynamics of colonial violence, but also how it's tied into uh, particular narratives about uh, colonial fears, essentially. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that you have you have worked on as well, and, and you use this really evocative phrase, um, the, the the deadly combination of, of white vulnerability and white power, uh, and, and so Stoller's article um, really speaks to that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm I am as you know a huge Ann Stoller fan, and um... I think that article might be folded into her, her her one of her more recent books along the archival grain. I think that's a chapter in there or at least she discusses that case. Uh, but I, the, I um the article's in
0: hmm? I I, uh, I I published um a version of of that uh, article in in an edited volume called uh, Engaging Colonial Knowledge uh, about 10 years ago. Maybe that's what you're thinking of.
1: Okay, great. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, hey, so what are you working on now?
0: Uh, More violence, uh, but um, this time uh, American colonial violence in the Philippines in the early 20th century, um, which is sadly in many ways very uh, relevant, uh, as we have Donald Trump talking about uh, General Pershing using pig's blood against terrorists, and he's alluding to the Philippines. Um, So I'm, I'm trying to... Get uh, the American side of the story, uh, uh, put it into the same analytical framework as, as we usually do with uh, British, French, German colonial violence. Because really what I think is uh, that all these Western imperial powers have far more in common um, than is usually assumed.
1: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, as a Southeast Asianist, I welcome you to the region. Um, you're going to love it. Um, so thank that's you. great well, I look forward to seeing that, seeing that work and um, thank you for your time Kim
0: no oh, thank you for having me
1: so this has been a discussion with Kim Wagner uh, of the University of London Queen Mary about his new book Amritsar 1919 An Empire of Fear and the Making of a Massacre out with Yale University Press I'm Michael G. Van and this has been an episode of New Books in History a channel on the New Books Network thank you for listening